Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. I went to see Ibsen's A Doll's House at the theater. Tenth Row Center, sitting to my left, Donald Trump. Congratulations. Sitting to his left, some skinny blonde I didn't recognize. And he's eating milk duds, like shoving them in his mouth, fistfuls at a time. And I look at him and I'm like, "Mm, do you need to own the company or are those available in the lobby? And he says, oh, ha, ha. Grabs the box from the skinny woman next to him and hands them to me because I don't think she eats anything but tofu and water. And so I eat the milk duds and we strike up a conversation. And he says, so what do you do? That's Nancy Lublin. And what does she do? She builds nonprofits the way Donald Trump builds skyscrapers. Her organizations are huge, tremendous, big league stuff, believe me. When Nancy accidentally sat next to Trump in that theater, she had just launched her first nonprofit, Dress for Success. The organization started as a clothing drive to help women on welfare dress for job interviews. She collected pantsuits, pearls, pumps, you name it. Nancy had it piling up in her teeny apartment. She figured, we'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. Trump might have a spare storage room somewhere in his real estate empire. So she started pitching. And I talk about um, Dress for Success and how amazing it is. And he says, oh, really? Do you enjoy it? And I was like, yes, it's pretty amazing helping women like move from welfare to work. And he says, really, it's not boring? And I'm like, no, it's not boring. So I say to him, so what do you do? And he says, no one's ever asked me that before. And I said, well, what do you do? How would you describe it? I'm really rich. That I guess I'm a builder. I build things. And I said, oh, do you like it? I mean, like I gave it right back to him. They're off to a rocky start. No matter. Nancy keeps pushing. Then I call a friend and say, you got to give me the name of his personal assistant. She says it's Norma Forwarder, who was famously his assistant for decades. And I go to Blockbuster again. This was a long time ago. And I get a giant box of milk duds and I get in a cab and I say, take me to Trump Tower. And I go up in Trump Tower and now I'm on the 26th floor. And I look around, it's all gold and glass and mirrors. 
through the golden glass mirrors, I see the skinny blonde Hi. from the night before in the theater. And I wave my arms. She comes over. She's like, the woman from the theater? What are you doing here? And I said, look, I will give him a box of Milk Duds a week for the rest of his life if you can just find me like 500 square feet of space because everything's in my apartment. And she says, he's broke. I look around and I'm like, I see, times are rough. And I shake her hand. I say, okay, well, thank you so much. You have to love this about Nancy. She doesn't give up easily. Now, again, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm bitten by that bug. I don't give up there. So I'm doing like Fox Breakfast TV the next week and I look over and the woman sitting next to me, I recognize her and I say, are you Liz Smith, the gossip columnist? She says, I am. And I say, you know, I have this story. You might be interested in it. And I tell her the story. And that Sunday, she writes it up in the New York Post. And it runs in her column nationally. And she tells it on TV. Monday morning, I take that New York Post and I go to Trump Tower and I say to security, please tell Norma Forderer that Nancy Lublin is downstairs. And I go up and Norma Forderer says, good to see you. We saw it. He saw it. He thinks it's very funny. But we have nothing for you. So the ending of the story is, I got the most beautiful rejection letter I've ever seen in my entire freaking life. Like on Trump Tower, gold embossed letterhead. Gold. As I've said before to you, I could scrape off that logo and make fillings for everyone I know. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the logo is like a quarter of an inch off the page. Beautiful. Beautiful. Telling me that he had no money and sorry, best of luck. I was working on something that, P.S., is now in 120 cities around the world. So like it would have been a safe bet to give me 500 bucks. Instead, I've got a story that I tell everywhere. The story isn't simply you can't take no for an answer. Anyone can do that. And frankly, if you get too pushy, you're more likely to get a restraining order than an investor. The real story is about the power of persistence and a good plan B, or rather, plans B. Just consider Nancy's multi-channel charm offensive. She deploys jokes, multiple boxes of milk duds, letters, surprise visits, and a New York gossip columnist. This is what we call grit, and grit is every entrepreneur's trump card. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, so, so I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. 10 years later, we're like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. I'm Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, investor at Greylock, and your host. I believe successful entrepreneurs need ideas, money, good timing, and a hefty dose of luck. But none of those matter if you don't have grit. Some people mistake grit for sheer persistence, charging up the same hill again and again. That's not quite what I mean by the word grit. The sort of grit you need to scale a business is less reliant on brute force. It's actually one part determination, one part ingenuity, and one part laziness. Yes, laziness. You want to conserve your energy. You want to minimize friction and find the most effective, most efficient way forward. You may actually have more grit if you treat your energy as a precious commodity. So forget the tired cliche of running a marathon. You want to be more like Indiana Jones, somersaulting under blades, racing a few steps ahead of a rolling boulder and swinging your whip until you reach your holy grail. But if you ask me, Nancy Lublin is the entrepreneurial equivalent of Indiana Jones. I wanted to talk to her for this episode because she's a 10 out of 10 when it comes to grit. And she also does her work in the not-for-profit sector, which has even more landmines than the commercial world. Capital is harder to come by, talent is harder to recruit, 
and our overall society, at least here in the U.S., broadly rewards commercial people more than they reward nonprofit people. So before we get to our guests, the entrepreneurs who put the grr in the word grit, I'd like to open a bit uncharacteristically with a quote from the Bible. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favor to the skillful. But time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happens to us all, except Nancy Lublin. Time and chance don't happen to Nancy, grit happens. And once this quality kicks in, she's unstoppable. Get her thinking about some social problem, and she gets restless. She can't tolerate it. Take, for example, her not-for-profit Dress for Success. You'll recall she wanted to help women on welfare enter the workforce in style. Entertainingly, Nancy never cared much for fashion. If anything, she finds it ludicrous. My father, growing up, um, was a lawyer, and he used to tell me that when he was hiring secretaries, he'd look out the window and watch them go from the car to the building, and that he'd know before they reached the building whether or not he'd hire them, which I thought was the worst thing I had ever heard. I was like, that's, you just described discrimination to me. That's horrible. And he said, and it's the truth, so go comb your hair. And so, I mean, I, I just kind of knew that the world works this way. We discriminate based on a first look on everybody. And so that's where Dress for Success came from. So Nancy has just identified a huge problem. Employers judge job applicants, especially women, based on their physical appearance. She might have valiantly struggled for fair hiring practices, but that's a struggle for activists, the sort of people who can tolerate an incremental battle with history and human nature. But Nancy wants a solution now. She can't change the way that bosses think overnight, but she can level the playing field by giving women access to professional clothing. She has an idea. She has $5,000 in seed money from her grandfather's estate, and she's about to get her first unlikely collaborators. And so I was in law school. I went to my law professor and said, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? And he sent me to Sister Mary Nerney in Spanish Harlem, and then she brought in two others. You may wonder why Nancy's law professor sent her to see nuns in Spanish Harlem about her idea for a nonprofit. Nancy had the same question. When I went to meet them for the first time, I like fully expected them to meet me in like in habit with locked arms singing like the sound of music. And instead, they're really cool. They're like kind of like social workers. They're really cool women. The drawback was I took financial advice from them. They told me to put the $5,000 into a six-month CD in the bank, which meant we started with no money. So, like, don't take financial advice from people who have taken an oath of poverty is the lesson there. Like, whenever I have done a startup, the first thing I actually do is call my family and friends. Because you think, wow, they love me, and I love them. That doesn't mean they're going to love your idea. I don't know, dear. It sounds kind of risky. And the thing about the nuns is they knew tons about moving people from welfare to work. They knew exactly what was going on in New York City and how to make this happen and how to get it started. They were actually the exact right people to start this with. So how did Nancy and three nuns manage to scale this network worldwide? They didn't have much money, aside from a $5,000 check from Nancy's great-grandfather's estate. They didn't have connections to wealthy philanthropists, and they certainly didn't have staff. Their only asset was their knowledge of the welfare system. That system included a vast network of government and private agencies dedicated to helping women. Nancy simply built an organization that could tap into this talent network for free. The challenge originally was we have these people who are moving from welfare to work. How do you get them into the system without passing a judgment on individuals? And then how do we solve our labor problem in the shop? So we combined that. And what we did was we screened agencies. 
We would approve domestic violence shelters. We would approve job training programs. We would approve homeless shelters. And then they could send whoever they wanted to the shop. As a barter, we required them to send someone to staff the shop one day a month. So we got free labor and high-quality referrals and didn't ever have to pass any judgment on any individual. So everybody who came to us was worth dressing because one of our employees, essentially, had referred them. And by the way, this model of staffing the shop and referring stays today in over 100 locations around the world. Notice what Nancy did not do. She did not try to build an entire system from scratch by herself, which is a trap many entrepreneurs fall into. She looked around for other sources of energy. Like a teeny jujitsu artist, she redirected the energy of stronger, heavier fighters. And this way, she channels the collective strength of the existing welfare system towards realizing this idea with her. You can think of this technique as a magnificent shortcut. And it's the kind of shortcut Nancy finds again and again. She darts ahead. She finds quick, systematic fixes to big, gnarly problems. It's a pattern throughout her story of grit. And the same quality that helped Nancy navigate the welfare system worked just as well as she worked her way through New York's upper crust of donors. So in the early days of Dress for Success, we would do these clothing drives. So women would give us clothes. So we would do a clothing drive at like Goldman Sachs when they go corporate casual. And so we'd get beautiful, beautiful suits. And like the largest suit would be a size eight. And the average size American is actually a 14. And the average size Dress for Success client was a 22. But we always did those suits anyway, because once you gave us your Armani suits, you gave us money. So we would take those suits and we might warehouse them for two years, but we were happy to get those suits from those women at Goldman because then they would write us checks because they felt closeness to us because we had that suit that they like interviewed somebody in or that they, you know, like went on CNBC the first time and they were wearing that Armani suit and now we had it. And so it was actually kind of a donor mechanism. It was part of the whole cycle of Dress for Success of like kind of wealthy businesswomen connecting with women who are going to go out and land their first jobs. Notice how she keeps turning problems, in this case piles of useless clothing, into solutions, sources of funding. That's why I call the best entrepreneurs infinite learners. The more thorny patches they hit, the more effective they become at hacking their way out. The only problem is that some CEOs, like Nancy, get a bit addicted to problem solving. If there's no problem to solve, well, they create some. I'm a wartime CEO. Once things get good and it's peacetime, I get bored. And I either want to like do something else wild to it or I'll f*** it up because I'm like, no, but we can do blah, blah, blah. And so I get bored and I move on. This is one of the byproducts of grit. It's a sort of restless energy that eventually compelled Nancy to leave Dress for Success once it had scaled. Have we talked about Scooby-Doo syndrome? Have I talked about this to you? No. Okay, so you've seen Scooby-Doo? Mm-hmm. Every Scooby-Doo episode is the same. There is a church or a movie theater that's going to be torn down to become a strip mall, okay? And there's like a zombie or a ghost that's haunting it. And so Mystery Inc. is called in to find the zombie or ghost. And Shaggy and Scooby are somehow the ones that always find the zombie or ghost, even though Velma knew it the whole time, which is totally weird, but whatever. And they unmask the zombie or ghost. It's not a zombie or ghost. It's like the granddaughter of the founder of the movie theater or like the janitor of the church. It's the founder. The founder is the zombie or ghost haunting the building it doesn't want to leave. And I had no desire to be a Scooby-Doo villain, right? So I leave things. I build things, and then I move on. I'm not particularly sentimental. And clearly you watched a lot of Scooby-Doo. I also apparently watched. (laughs) I mean, come on. I'm an 80s kid. We all watched a lot of (laughs) that. So Nancy found a new problem, a nearly bankrupt organization called DoSomething.org. 
Do Something mobilizes young people to volunteer for worthy causes. Back in 2003, it was nearly defunct. What was the state of Do Something when you... Bad. It was on fire. Andrew Shue started it when he was on Melrose Place. But then he went off air and had three kids in New Jersey. And Do Something fell on really hard times. When I got there, they had just laid off 21 out of 22 people. They had lost their office space and everything was in boxes in storage in Queens. They were 250K in debt and had about $74,000 in the bank. It was totally, totally fucked. Nancy was smitten. You know what? I thought the name was great. Do Something was great. There was no organization that was cool and fun for young people. And it was, there needed to be something that made volunteerism and social change fun and energetic. And so to me, it was like a ficus plant, you know, like leaves fall off all the time. But like, if the roots are good, you can probably bring it back. And I thought, this is interesting. I had also just turned 30. And I was getting headhunted for a number of very serious roles. But what I realized was that the headhunter was only bringing in me to make the headhunter look good. Like, here's one crazy outside-the-box candidate. Look, we're bringing you a 30-year-old entrepreneur. No one was taking me seriously. And I wanted to take something that was totally screwed and prove that actually, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm also really smart. I think sometimes entrepreneurs are written off as wacky visionaries. You know, we, are, we can be more than that. We are systems thinkers. Before long, Nancy got that ficus plant flourishing. The breakthrough moment? When her team identified a crucial shift in technology that made all the difference in reaching their adolescent audience. If you know a teenager, you already know. To get their attention, text them. I think probably the biggest epiphany was the pivot to text. And the best thing that I did was get out of the way. So I was on a conference call and I saw through like the, a glass door, people in my office high-fiving each other. And I was like, like, I, I didn't like, what was, what is going on? Why are you all so happy? And, um, and it turns out that two like entry-level employees had pulled 500 defunct users, like people we hadn't heard from in six months had probably emailed them 20 times and pulled their mobile numbers and texted them about a campaign we had done. And in nine minutes, they saw a 20% response rate. Holy crap. I was smart enough to say, let's do that. And also, I guess I was smart enough to create an environment where entry-level employees felt comfortable experimenting. And like, that's what you've got to do as an entrepreneurial CEO is get out of the way sometimes. And then when you see someone do something really smart, grab it and elevate it and be like, let's do that. And so we pivoted and we became a membership organization and we did everything around text and grew rapidly thanks to that. Nancy's ability to tap every resource around her, including her entry-level employees, is one of her hidden strengths as a scale leader. Under Nancy's guidance, Do Something adds nearly 5 million teenagers as members. And then she does something truly daring. She hatched an idea for a third nonprofit called Crisis Text Line, and she goes ahead and launches it at the same time. I don't recommend having two full-time jobs. Notice how Nancy doesn't relish holding down two impossibly demanding jobs at once. But you have to understand her motivation. When she sees a problem, she wants to solve it fast. The bigger the problem, the gnarlier the solution, the more she wants to solve it. Her irrepressible urge to launch Crisis Text Line began with a single text from a single teenager. You see, Do Something sent all of its communications by text message, and their volunteers would respond by text as well. Each campaign would unleash a wave of goodwill and cheer, for the most part. But there were always a few teens who replied to these texts asking for help. But there would be a couple dozen messages out of flow saying things like, I'm being bullied, my best friend's addiction to crystal meth, and we would triage them. One day, 
Nancy read a text message that she couldn't stop turning over in her head. It was in response to a do something campaign. And then we got a message that put me on this other path that literally said, he won't stop raping me. It's my dad. He told me not to tell anyone. And then the letters, are you there? Imagine, you're the CEO and someone brings that and puts it on your desk and is like, I don't know what to do with this. It was like being punched in the stomach. It's so horrific. I couldn't believe it was happening to like a real human. And then how bad does it have to be to share that, like to be so alone that you share that with an organization like this? Into You don't know where this is going. And so we built Crisis Text Line really for her. And here we come to the wellspring of grit. You have to have a mission, a calling that's so powerful, it makes you want to run through a minefield on a foggy day with your shoelaces tied together. So Nancy envisioned Crisis Text Line as a hotline that would funnel text messages to crisis centers around the country. It would open up a whole new line of communication who preferred the convenience and anonymity of writing from their phones. Nancy figured she could earmark some portion of Do Something's budget for the cause. They were averaging $6 million a year in corporate sponsorships. And I went to the board, I went to you guys, I went to the board and said, I want to do this. And you guys, I think rightly said, brand confusion would do something. Do something is hopeful, happy, volunteerism. Crisis text line is a different thing. We'll give it your blessing, but like you got to do that on the side. And so I did it at the same time for a long time. It was harder than I thought it was going to be. And it was maybe harder than it should have been. The truth is it took me two years to secure the funding to do it. And I would dial for dollars. And I found one friend that was like, you'll come into my office every week for an hour and just go through my Rolodex. And on the third week, I spoke to someone. And in five minutes, I described it in five minutes. He said, stop, stop, stop. I'm going to give you $50,000 because someone needs to just give you money to see if this will go anywhere. And I might never see you again, but it's worth putting this money down. And I wanted to be anonymous. So I refer to him for a long time as Mr. X. Mr. X. He's now fine being known. It's actually, it's Peter Bloom, who's the board chair of Donors Choose, who has done this. He's made bets on people like that, not expecting any return. These early bets on social change ideas. That's awesome. And with that money, it became real. I had to really do it. I hired our CTO and our chief data um, scientist, even though I only had 50K. So that wasn't going to keep them very long. And so then it meant, I've really got to find the rest of the money and make this happen. So Nancy, once again, was scaling on a shoestring budget. She figured Crisis Text Line could piggyback on a patchwork of crisis hotlines across the country. She would supply the text messages. The counselors would supply the 24-hour support. It was shaping up to be another one of her clever jujitsu moves, until Nancy found she was channeling their energy to the wrong teens. Crisis counselors tend to specialize in specific issues, like suicide or sexual abuse or eating disorders. And this led some counselors to write some rather awkward, scripted responses. We originally built this thinking we would just be the pipes, we would be the technology, and we would farm this out to other crisis centers to do the counseling. And we kept growing, like fast, fast, fast. So we went from three to 11 in like six months, crisis centers. What we noticed was that they were incredibly diverse. One crisis center would ask every single texter, are you feeling suicidal today? Um, no, I have a calculus final this afternoon. Should I be feeling suicidal? Like the quality was all over the place. It wasn't great. And so we called best practices from the platform and said, well, what if we trained our own people based on what we're seeing? And so we trained this magic 12th cohort and quickly saw that they outperformed on every KPI. KPI stands for Key Performance Indicator. And pivoted. So we dumped all of the crisis centers who we were paying. So we saved that money, moved instead to a volunteer model and basically became a marketplace. Nancy has made a hugely risky decision here. She's scrambling for funding. 
She's just jettisoned her partnerships with the experienced counselors who are supposed to help her scale. And if she has any chance of keeping her idea afloat, she has to now train an army of novices in the art of texting with distressed teens. Nancy has a gift for bringing other people along on her hero's journey. She uses her own grit to embolden and inspire people to join her and even do it for free. In fact, the greatest shortcut Nancy has ever found, the one she turns to again and again in her story of grit, is the almost bottomless well of human industriousness. What Nancy understands so well is that people love to help. Sometimes all you need to do is ask them. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was, like, sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Nancy is so confident volunteers will answer her call that she envisions a marketplace for crisis hotline volunteers, much in the way Uber built a marketplace for drivers or Airbnb built a marketplace for home rentals. But how on earth does she match supply and demand? She can't offer surge pricing to volunteers during a spike in teenage need. She can't offer any pricing whatsoever. What she needs is a surge of goodwill. It's a bold vision, and there are a handful of other scale leaders who will tell you that this works. I think as a rule, we tend to underestimate people's hunger and desire to be helpful. That's Greg Baldwin, president of Volunteer Match. Their website matches millions of volunteers, more than 100,000 organizations that need their help. The most scalable nonprofits, he says, start with a plea for help that's ambitious, verging on the unreasonable. When Habitat for Humanity got started, how unreasonable is it to think that you could invite millions of people to help build homes for other people? It's a crazy idea when you think about it, but it took somebody to ask to see how powerful that ask is. Uh, to bring people into doing something that they think is important. Crisis Text Line is another amazing example of that. It's so unreasonable to think that people would willingly take time out of their busy lives to be on their cell phone texting with kids in crisis. It just, it almost doesn't make sense why someone would do that. Um, And certainly you can imagine being reluctant to ask somebody to do that. But what we find so often is it's in those big, bold asks, those unreasonable asks, that some of the most amazing things happen. For this episode, we did a flash poll of the Volunteer Match community. 
the managers at nonprofits who are in the front lines of these crazy requests. We wanted to know just how hard they'll push their volunteers and how far was too far. So we asked, have you ever heard a volunteer say, you're asking too much of me? More than 400 volunteer managers responded, and statistically speaking, it was a resounding no. Only 11% of volunteer managers have ever heard that, which is fascinating. And then we asked whether they thought they could ask more of their volunteers. And 70% of the users said yes. So the real question is, what's keeping people from making these requests that are, you know, somewhat outside the norm? It's a good question. And John Lilly, the former CEO of Mozilla, has a theory. Mozilla is an open source web browser powered almost entirely by volunteers. They do everything from coding to marketing to translation. And John actually believes these volunteers, working for free, can run circles around paid professionals. You just have to know how to work on a sliding scale. There are ways for people to contribute an hour a week, ways to contribute 40 hours a week or 80 hours a week, and it kind of scales up and down, which most organizations don't know how to do. They know how to have you be an employee or not. So it's sort of binary. Open source, the successful ones, figure out a way to be on the spectrum. There's a guy I remember from Ulaanbaatar who translated Firefox and Thunderbird in Mongolian. And for him, he did it because if he hadn't done that, his parents wouldn't, who only spoke Mongolian wouldn't have been able to understand software to access the internet. And so for these people, they do it as a labor of love. And, you know, you'll know this, the root of the word amateur is, is amo, which means I love. And I think that amateurs and volunteers in many ways are more powerful than professionals because they do it for non-monetary, they do it, they do it despite all the challenges and all, all the hard parts. And Nancy is an expert at whipping up that inner ama, that inner love. She starts from the premise that she's not unique and caring. Plenty of other people could care as much as her. She just has to find them and sell them on her cause. And if you want to know what true grit sounds like, just listen to her multifaceted approach to recruitment. So um, recruitment, sure, zeroing in on like who are our best crisis counselors and figuring that out um, was key and then now finding more of them. It turns out that it shifts. Like post-election, sad liberals are great. President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. (laughs) We're loving sad liberals. People really want to feel like they're having an impact on something. And what's better than talking to another stranger in the most dire moments of their life? I mean, it's a real impact. Moms of a certain age, love them. Deaf and hard of hearing. Phenomenal. Most organizations don't know what to do with them. Hard to volunteer if you're deaf or hard of hearing. We love you. Veterans. I love veterans. Especially when the heat is on and we're spiking, the veterans are like, we got this. We can do it. Let's go. Come on, team. We got this. This swell of volunteers allowed Crisis Text Line to scale quickly and meet the growing and spiking demand. We've done zero marketing. We've done over 700,000 conversations since launching. That works out to be close to 30 million messages exchanged. But those 30 million messages didn't arrive in a steady stream. They would spike and dip regardless of how many counselors were available at the time. So she started triaging the messages through a combination of grunt work and big data. They had to identify the keywords and phrases and then rank those words on a scale of whirring to let's call 911 immediately. And when you listen to Nancy talk about it, you'll hear what grit sounds like in the digital age. Leaders with grit are relentlessly inventive, using every possible tool to accomplish their goals. They joyfully solve problems in ways that no one ever thought of before. As Nancy describes the algorithm they built to better understand text messages and how it helped them better serve teenagers in crisis, you'll hear the raw thrill of discovery in her voice. True grit is relentlessly forward moving.
So we originally put into the algorithm words like die, suicide, and overdose. And if you text in those words, you're number one in the queue. And then we added a machine learning layer. What are the words people use? In a high-risk case. And it turns out that there are thousands of them that are more high-risk than suicide. Apparently, it's 16 times more likely to end up in us calling 911 than the word suicide, which I, I know I've already quizzed you on this one, so you know, but uh, whatever, listeners can guess. And it's actually, it's ibuprofen, aspirin, Tylenol, Advil. It's the most common drug in your house. So you not only have the idea and the plan, but you have the means and the timing because it's right in your medicine cabinet. So those words and the unhappy face crying emoji is four times more powerful, four times more likely for us to end up calling 911 than the word suicide. The hashtag KMS, any idea what that stands for? Neither did we. But the algorithm discovered, that's kill myself. This is a perfect example of science, of data, of technology, making an organization faster and more accurate. Before long, her team was equipped to handle huge influxes of messages. Soon, she was detecting waves of anxiety rolling across middle schools nationwide. The data was unprecedented in its scope and timeliness. Oh, gosh. So the hard thing about marketplaces, so you don't control supply and you don't control demand. Every once in a while, there'll be like an unpredictable event. Now, if I ran Lyft, I could put surge pricing in place, and so you can handle that. So unpredictable events for crisis tech sign are things like Zane leaving One Direction. And we had just tons of people texting in um, with serious anxiety. For those listeners who haven't heard of Zane or One Direction, I'll translate it into old fogey terms. Zane would be Zane Malik, a British singer for the boy band One Direction. And when he left the band, it was a bit like Justin Timberlake leaving NSYNC or John Lennon leaving the Beatles. I mean, the hashtag cut for Zane trended worldwide for almost three days when Zane left One Direction. These are girls cutting real skin, um, hoping that he would see this and rejoin One Direction. And that sent real traffic to us. And how do you build the capacity for that? Or how do you build the response yeah. to it? Again, as a marketplace. And also, what's the size of the volunteer network? Yeah, that's over 3,000. And they take a lot of time and caring and love, and they are who we are. And can you imagine? They do it all for free. Like, they're giving us time at 2 o'clock in the morning. They're incredible, incredible people. They are who we are. That one sentence sums up the approach to scale that Nancy has taken throughout her career. She identifies the people and organizations who can take her idea forward, and she makes them her own. There's a lot to be said about sticking with a vision and adapting it through the years, weathering the rise and fall of luck. But I don't want to overstate the power of grit. Ultimately, your plans are subject to luck. You may be thinking, I thought grit was my superpower, my ability to overcome time and chance. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. I like the way Sam Altman, president of Silicon Valley's most successful accelerator, Y Combinator, unpacks this problem. The way I have always tried to think about it for myself is that luck is a big factor, but I'm going to keep working. And eventually, you know, because it's a random variable, it's going to swing my way. I think that's roughly the right mindset to have. If you don't acknowledge the role of luck at all, like I think you're wrong in a dangerous way where you sort of just are not a great human. And if you can't look and say, I got really lucky at some points, it's probably bad. But if you're also like, well, it's all about luck and you know, I have no chance the world is against me and I'm just going to sit here and complain. That's not going to work either. So I think, yeah, the roughly correct mindset is luck is important, but I'm eventually going to get lucky and I'm going to just work really hard until I do. That may be the one of the better definitions of optimism that actually I think I've heard. 
I'm Reed Hoffman. Thank you for listening. For additional insights and practical lessons based on my theories, go to entrepreneur.com slash masters of scale. Next week on Masters of Scale. We try to constantly encourage the police to figure out how to improve the culture. So not how to preserve it. So everyone is trying to add value by here's a place we can improve in what we do. And so that keeps it very alive. It's not the golden tablets. It's a constantly evolving, living both document and practice. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original in association with Stitcher. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Dan Kedmi, Jenny Cataldo, and Ben Manila. Special thanks to Jessica Johnston, Saida Sepieva, Elisa Schreiber, Chris Ye, David Sanford, Jay Punjabi, Stephanie Kent, and Rafina Ahmad. Original music is by the Holiday Brothers. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub.